I'm Bert Cohen, and the election is coming. And with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Could it be that over the last 40 years in America, things are so different that out-and-out racism is more acceptable than it was in 1980? In the presidential election that year, the so-called Southern strategy, first created by Nixon, used code words to connect and slyly inspire Southern white racists It was also employed again successfully by then-Governor Ronald Reagan. The candidate carefully avoided saying anything that was too openly racist. Overt racism was not a widely acceptable thing back then. Is it still the case in 2020? Trump is the most openly racist candidate for president since George C. Wallace of 1968 and 72. Wallace, of course, didn't win. Far more Americans quickly rejected his old-fashioned appeals to white supremacy. But I wonder... After the presidency of Barack Obama, and after the whole world watched in horror as police murdered George Floyd, racial tensions are ramped up as never before. And curiously, unlike Ronald Reagan, President Trump is doing all he can to fan the flames, and he's counting on the culture war to get him back into the White House. While the symbols of racism, the Confederate flag, is being rejected and finally taken down across the country without too much objection, in just the past few days, Donald Trump shocked pretty much everyone, insisting that NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace apologized. You may recall that a noose was found in his garage, and other people reported it. Trump openly defends the flying of the Confederate flag and aggressively defends statues to racist Confederates. Ronald Reagan wouldn't have done that. Texas uh, Representative Al Green said, This is a president who seems to side with the Confederacy, a rebel flag, the people who preach hate, unquote. At Mount Rushmore, Trump lambasted a, quote, left-wing cultural revolution and a new far-left fascism. Contradiction in terms, of course, but so what? It's Trump. Unlike the last uh, right-wing president, Ronald Reagan, who carefully toned it down in the year 2020, is it working for him? This, of course, is a man who doesn't read and seemingly knows no history whatsoever. But did he or his campaign actually uh, learn from Reagan's victorious campaign over President Carter in 1980? Is his racism kept from being too blatantly overt on purpose? Are his words actually thought out? Could it be that his campaign team is being cagey and strategic after all? Is it possible they do have in mind lessons from Ronald Reagan's winning 1980 campaign? With us today is Rick Perlstein, author of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, and Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus. 
His latest book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, will be released August 18th. His new article on History News Network, which I recommend, his new article is titled The Ghosts of Neshoba, Why Trump Can't Dog Whistle His Way Back to the White House. And in these frightening times, Pearlstein provides some reason for hope. Ronald Reagan was one of our more significant presidents. It certainly was a turn to the right. He took the then-defeated Goldwater wing of the party to victory. Instead of abandoning it, the right-leaning Republicans held on after their drubbing in 1964. They did emerge victorious in 1980. While it seems Democrats, after their loss in 1972, abandoned their liberalism in an attempt to appeal to some imagined middle. One of our more clever candidates, Bill Clinton, actually appeared to take the Southern strategy into stride when he brought some of the code words into his campaign. He courted the Reagan voters by targeting welfare reform. But there was, of course, no overt racism. He had some excess in appealing to both black people and more traditional white Southerners. Today, it's nothing of the sort. Could it be that Trump actually knows what he's doing by amping up racial and cultural divisions? How possible is it that this strategy, if indeed it is not just Trump's unthinking impulse, could bring him to victory in November? Could it be possible that the Trump team actually knew what it was doing when they scheduled their campaign rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma for June 19th before switching it? Or could it have simply been that innocent? Uh, Rick, thanks so much for being with us. Two questions about your title. I have heard the yeah. phrase dog whistle in recent times, but I hadn't been sure as to its meaning until your article. What is a dog whistle? And please take us back to Lester Maddox, Ross Barnett, George Wallace, oh and the political realities, even the Shoba, Mississippi. What happened with Governor Reagan at the Shoba County Fair in the summer of 1980? Sure, sure. You, you, place so many rich items for discussion on the plate there and uh, let's feast on them let's start with the, the dog whistle right uh you know that there are some frequencies that dogs can hear uh that humans can't hear they're so high that you blow it what they call a dog whistle and every dog in the neighborhood will come start barking and you'd be like why why are they barking it's because they can hear this very high-pitched frequency that human beings can't in politics, dog whistling refers to sending a coded message to one desired part of the electorate uh, in a manner that the sort of mainstream model of uh, candidate for Christians, I support the Christian right agenda, without offending those for whom that might be offensive. Uh, but much more commonly, uh, you hear racial dog whistles. So uh, the perfect example is um, in Richard Nixon's uh, acceptance speech at the 1968 convention, this classic law and order speech. He said that the first civil right of all Americans is the right to be safe in their homes, right? So when he said that, it was saying, well, the, the civil rights movement can safely be ignored when it comes to African-Americans the real civil rights movement is the one that applies to white people, which is uh, has to do with you know, black crime, being protected from kind of black encroachments into your neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the next year, quite famously, he gave a big speech about the Vietnam War in which he said that he was appealing to not the loud, you know, kind of malcontents who protest in the streets, but the great silent majority of Americans. And it's now, amazing course, that Trump is actually, I got an email today 
using that phrase again, the great right. silent majority versus the far left. Sorry to interrupt, right. but that was amazing. No, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. We can all talk about all this stuff. And of course, to say majority is to say minority. And when yeah. you talk about minorities in America, you know, minorities are most commonly what, you know, kind of in a euphemistic way, African-Americans I refer to. So if he says, I'm for the majority, not the minorities, right? Uh, he's saying uh, for people who are inclined to hear it, that he's really for white people, mm -hmm. right? So this was very successful. Um, and, you know, often when you refer to things like, you know, people getting too much welfare, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan did that. And we can get into these subtleties in 1976 when he said uh, on the campaign trail, well, there's this woman in Chicago mm. who, you know, has 10 names and has gotten a hundred thousand dollars. And he had, you know, this really strange, actually factually accurate case, you know, which, which was far from typical. Right. Uh, but it was just a way of saying, wow, all these, um, these black people are getting mm. all this stuff from white people. Right. Or you talk about, uh, you know, the tax takers as, as opposed to yeah. the tax payers. Right. Uh, so that's the dog whistle. And uh, to kind of take it up uh, to the present, um, a lot of people say, it's is not original to me, that Donald Trump has taken the dog whistle and turned it into a train whistle, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing mistakable, <laughs> right? There's nothing, there's nothing mistakable about when Donald Trump introduces himself to the American electorate as a politician in 2015, by saying that Mexicans, Mexico is not "quote unquote" sending its best people; it's sending its racists, right? I mean, rapists. sending its rapists, right? right? And um, you know, that's not—that's racist. Yeah. <laughs> that's saying that Mexicans are bad people, right? And that bad people are coming to America. There's nothing coded about that, <laughs> right? So that's that's the distinction, right? In so many ways, he takes kind of the subtext and turns it into the text. The fascinating thing I remember is, you know, we're talking a lot about the Confederate flag right, right now, or right. the Confederate flag. One of those, you know, dimly remembered historical uh, events that seems like it, you know, happened around the time of, you know, Genghis Khan or Charlemagne or something was right the same week that um, Donald Trump announced, you know, his campaign in the manner in which he did. Mm -hmm. um, liberals were celebrating that uh, a young African-American activist climbed up the flagpole, and I believe it was South Carolina, and removed a Confederate flag from um, the statehouse there. And that really kind of jump-started the conversation we're still having. The striking thing about that was, I, I remember writing about that uh, in 2015, because people were so jubilant that finally this dark chapter of Confederate flags and celebration of the Confederacy was ending. And then, you know, wham, bam, thank you, man. Donald Trump comes Jeez. to the fore. Yeah. Yeah. No, can, I make one, can I make oh, one, just... one, one correction from, oh, sure, from, 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 from your wonderful monologue? Well, you're the um, historian. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Sure. It's, 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 it's that Donald Trump is, is, is not, uh, the most racist uh, candidate since George Wallace. He's uh, ran for president in 1968, 1972. He's way more racist than, than, than even George Wallace was in 1968, 1972, because by that point, George Wallace, who of course, you know, basically began his career as an out and out racist, yeah. uh, you know, appealing to people who, you know, wanted to lynch black people, right. had he gotten the message, but right? he, you, if you study his speeches in 1968, 
you know, he said absolutely savage things about anti-war protesters. He said absolutely savage things about, you know, professors who couldn't park their bicycles straight and liberals. And yep. he was very violent. And he was very nasty, but he would not say those things about African-Americans because even, even, even George Wallace had figured out that after the civil rights movement and after basically the, the ordeals of murder and lynching and, and, and church burnings and all that, that you could not be taken seriously as um, someone who aspired to the highest office in the land if you spoke that language. So even he was doing dog whistles by then. How is it then that Trump has transformed this dog whistle into a train whistle? What is different? But before we get into that, I just want to remind people <laughs> if they tuned into uh, Bert Cohen here on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Rick Perlstein author of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon, The Rise of Reagan, Nixonland. And he's got a new one coming out, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, coming out August 18th. How do we go from subtle dog whistles to out-and-out -out racism? Is it, how much of it, I wonder, is a reaction to Barack Obama actually being yeah, president? Yeah, I think, I think there's definitely something to that. Although I think even if we had a white, uh, a president in 2009 who was a liberal, you would have heard uh, a lot of that too. I think that mm. liberalism has been kind of so associated with, you know, advocacy for African Americans at the expense of white people that uh, this was just kind of um, becoming more and more degraded as times went on. And people give as the explanation for that, uh, you know, not merely Obama, but you know, the fact of demographics that you know, white people do appear to be becoming a minority, that um, the basically the kind of extra kind of bonus you get for being a white person, you know, in America, sure. you know, that kind of hidden wage you get just for the privilege of having white skin, uh, you know, really is oh, yeah. uh, going away. And uh, that sort of kind of affirmative action for white people is is causing all sorts of panic and rage and certainly another element that we saw mixing into the stew in 2007 2008 and 2009 was the uh, the financial crisis and the economic collapse and uh part of a long trend of degradation of you know the ability to get a decent right. middle class life uh, by just having a high school degree and working hard and playing by the rules. Right. You know that's out the window. So you have to blame things like like globalization, and suddenly you have this mass of kind of alienated, enraged white people. You know people used to talk a lot more about this stuff kind of in the middle of the 20th century after the. Uh, you know the traumas of fascism and Nazism in 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 in, in Europe, uh, that of course ended with a toll of tens of millions dead and six million Jews and lots of other minorities. That alienated people are really susceptible to lowest common denominator kind of demagogic appeals to their basis instincts. So we have this kind of cauldron, and we you you mix in this guy, you know Donald Trump, who has. Um, a long, long, long history of racism going even back to the you know early 1970s when he was working for his dad, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the Justice Department, you know, had the Trump organization in their sights for, you know, marking 
applicants for apartments race on their applications and denying them to you know to, to African Americans and coming up at a time when you know New York was uh, a cauldron of, of violence and racial tension um, and you get this guy who uh, whose every feral instinct is to protect white people at the expense of minorities and uh, he was able to squeak by in 2016. And uh, he's um, up for the election, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, he has chosen what he thinks is the Richard Nixon playbook for his re-election. Um, and that's where you get into the complications of Reagan and, and Neshoba and what I tried to get at in this article and also in this book I have coming up uh, Reagan land, which is this mediating figure of Reagan, who in a lot of ways um, makes things kind of complicated because he was such a skilled rhetorician. He was uh, such a skilled dog whistler. He was so good at advocating for policies that disadvantage African-Americans. For example, he cut the uh, budget of the Department of Housing uh, and Urban Development uh, in, in during his eight years as president by about 80%, obviously a policy that disadvantages African-Americans, while at the same time doing such a brilliant job of, let's, let's call it two things. Uh, a, uh, making African-Americans, I mean, ma- making white Americans, uh, kind of drenching them in a narrative of innocence, that America wasn't a racist country. He had a lot of strategies to do that. And B, at least when it came to uh, his election in 1980, uh, much less so by the time he, you know, African-Americans had suffered eight years under his boot, convincing African-American leaders in 1980 that he was a person of racial goodwill, such that absolutely astonishing detail I put in the article that a lot of people have forgotten. Martin Luther King's number one deputy Ralph Abernathy, in whom uh, Martin Luther King's arms, uh, in whose arms Martin Luther King died in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1968, endorsed Ronald Reagan for president. Amazing, and it, it's that took some skill, no doubt. Now, it, right, and that's where you get to the Reagan-Trump comparison. Well, did. W- do we know? I mean, there's so much evidence of Trump's, you know, uh, his history of overt racism. Do we know? I mean, Reagan did talk about the the oh, welfare queen. Yeah, he right. talked about the welfare queen. Was he as much of a racist, but just more skilled, more of a uh, skilled rhetorician, as you say? I mean, how that's, the heck did he get Ralph Abernathy? <laughs> such an interesting question and that and that it would be so i think liberals and people on the left of course which i count myself sure. um would love to just be able to kind of like pin that label on him you know give him the scarlet r and say he was a racist and that he hit it but it's really it's really much more complicated than that um and it just shows the kind of the cunning of how um racial domination and white supremacy, let's call it, works in America. So, I mean, just to kind of take it mm. way back, you know, this is a guy, Ronald Reagan, who grew up, who, who was born in 1911 uh, and came up in a time, let's say, uh, in his kind of uh, uh, 
adolescence in which the Ku Klux Klan was a dominant feature in uh, in American politics. You know, Indiana, a lot of us know, in the 1920s was run by the Ku Klux Klan. You know, it had millions of members. Uh, in 1924, uh, the racist immigration law that passed was pretty much a Ku Klux Klan law. You know, the, the Democratic Convention in 1924 kind of bogged down, split down the middle between kind of pro-Klan and anti-Klan factions. Mm. But the fact of the matter is Ronald Reagan's dad was a Catholic. Uh, one of the biggest parts of uh, the Klan's appeal in the 1920s was anti-Catholicism. Yeah. And his dad was basically what amounted to an anti-Klan activist, right? So there's that kind of complication. Uh-huh. Now, now it's kind of a self-serving thing because his dad was a Catholic, right? So, but it, but the fact of the matter is, you know, he was taught to see all people as as equal uh, in a way that was probably to the left of what most Americans were learning at the time in an extremely, extremely racist period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are stories that, for example, um, when his, I forget whether it's his, I think it's his college team, his college, um, basketball team, uh, went on the road and the, the, the black player wasn't allowed to go into the hotel. The whole team slept on the bus. Right. And this this guy, this, I think I think I, I think I got just the just the story to get this 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 kind of complicated history across. The, the one of the, that player was named um, I think William Burkhart. His, his nickname was Bergie, and he was forever grateful to Ronald Reagan, and they were friends, and they kind of exchanged letters every time, every you know, a couple times a year, you know. But at the same time, just to show the most important element in all this. Um, Ronald Reagan claimed that this that this guy Bergie, when he would give his speeches and when he would kind of absolve America of racism, he would say that this guy was his best friend. I mean, he literally said, "Some of my best friends are black." Mm. And I, I discovered something uh, very late in my research for Reaganland that was very fascinating. When uh, this guy died in the early 1980s. Um, I read an article in Jet Magazine, the African American mm-hmm. magazine that's published in Chicago, and it was um, a little eulogy for this guy. And it was pointed out that uh, this guy Burkhart got a lot of phone calls in uh, 1981 or something like that, the year before that, uh, asking if he was dead. And he's like, "What are you talking about?" Said, oh, Ronald Reagan said you died. And he's like, oh, he must have he must have been thinking about the other black guy on the team. He, <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, you know, this is kind of this is kind of a toll of white supremacy and, and you know, that kind of subtle, oh, you know, structural racism, not being able to see black people <laughs> as individuals. But at the same time, Ronald Reagan was just so good at saying, you know, this, you know, racism is terrible. I'm not a racist, but also you're not a racist. You know, you just think that these uh-huh. government programs are wasteful. You know, you just think that too many people are on welfare. And I found this amazing memo. It was like not even a memo. It was notes of a meeting when they were kind of planning the presidential campaign in like 1978. And they 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 framed as kind of the the constituency that they would try to appeal to uh, for Reagan's presidential campaign as as quote the white middle class and blacks who want the same thing. Mm. So you know as long as as long as you know kind of African Americans you know. Um, basically you know assimilated mm-hmm, <laughs> and didn't mm-hmm. make too much noise you know we're going to be you know that's 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 the kind of people we want and then another fascinating uh thing i discovered in doing this research just one more one sure, more sure, detail sure. about oh, this is the cunning and, comp- and complexity of ronald reagan and race 
he had a very, very smart um, pollster and strategist named Richard Worthlin, um, who one of his um, strategies and the reason they were able to get people like Ralph Abernathy on board was that as often as possible, uh, and then <laughs> we can finally get to this complicated Neshoba situation, uh, <laughs> as often as possible, um, they had Ronald Reagan speak before African-American audiences. And this guy, Worthlin, freely admitted that this was not to attract black voters, which they didn't think they were going to be able to do because mm. most blacks associated the Republican Party with you know, opposition to civil rights laws by then. But that was to signal to white suburbanites, which we talk about a lot now as the people who are abandoning Trump because of his racism, that it was safe to vote for Reagan without feeling like they were helping bigotry. Wow. Oh, they, they had some smart people back then. Yes. I mean, I, this guy, you know, we, we think of, you know, Reagan as this kind of untutored guy who just kind of spoke from the, the, the gut. But he, he was great at taking direction. And uh, uh-huh. Worthlin was coming up with hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of I mean, I have, I have these, you know, I have, you know, photocopies of this, you know, 500 page book of poll results. You know, it's like, uh-huh. what do, you know, kind of left-handed Mormons think of, you know, uh, um, you know, um, various different Ted issues. Kennedy, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, I mean, it was very, very sophisticated operation. And obviously uh, even if Donald Trump's, uh, had people of that sophistication with him, he wouldn't listen to what they had to say. So right. it's a, a huge difference. And now we can talk about <laughs> this very well-known event, which is misunderstood in my interpretation that happened uh, in Neshoba County, Mississippi, early in August in 1980. And the title of your piece in uh, History News Network is Ghosts of Neshoba. Why Trump right. can't dog whistle his way back to the White House. I don't think I've ever been to Neshoba County, Mississippi. Tell us. About uh, well, uh, I cannot speak uh, from personal experience about Nestoba <laughs> County, Mississippi. It's not in the Delta, so it's not like, uh, you know, it's not the, the deepest, darkest Mississippi. And I can't recommend it as a tourist destination as such, <laughs> but I would love to go to the Neshoba County Fair. Uh, it's a very special kind of county fair. It's actually the, one of the biggest in America. It's uh, actually privately owned. It's not kind of controlled by the county. And... Um, uh, you know, we hear this, you know, in Shoba County Fair, why do you go to this one little tiny county fair in this one random county? And of course, the detail that's pointed out is that it's only a couple miles away from where Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, the civil rights, uh, voting rights activists in 1964, were lynched mm-hmm. and buried under an earthen dam. Uh, and it was one of the most terrible, terrifying, monstrous things, you know, with the help of the local sheriff you know, that happened uh, during the civil rights movement. So why would he go to this place? And what a lot of people don't understand is uh, the Shoba County Fair is, uh, is, is an amazing thing. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a, if you want, and, and one of the things that was going on strategically was, this is pretty easy to forget too, because of course, no, you know, Democrat would win Mississippi in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 2020. Never. But, you know, Jimmy <laughs> Carter won Mississippi because he was from Georgia next door. And this was, a great point of Southern pride that one of their own was running, was, was, was running for president and became president. So, you know, Mississippi really kind of seemed up for grabs, right? So they wanted to tell, you know, they wanted to tell Jimmy Carter, look, you're not going to be able to take the South for granted. We're challenging. And so part of the strategy for going to Mississippi right at the beginning of the campaign 
uh, was to say, look, Jimmy Carter, you know, uh, you're going to have to spend resources here. This is just, you know, simple mm-hmm. electoral calculation. Uh, but at the same time, and this is something a lot of people who point to this event aren't necessarily aware of, the next day, Ronald Reagan spoke um, in New York City to the African-American organization, the Urban League. <laughs> uh, and, and that was part of that strategy of telling white people, oh, I'm not a racist. So you had these kind of two things happening right next to each other. Um, and had had Ronald Reagan gone to this magnificent county fair with uh, – it was the only it was the only place where you could gamble on horse racing in Mississippi, and people would um, stay the whole week in these cabins. And mm. um, if he had just gone there and given his, his given his normal speech, we wouldn't have known about this event, right? It was only because, uh, as I as, as I have it from a, a, another young historian who's kind of done the archival digging, named Marcus Witcher, that uh, basically on the way to the airport, he was picked up by his Mississippi chairman, Congressman Trent Lott. Mm-hmm who uh, has a terrible background when it comes to this stuff. He had been the president of the fraternity where um, basically served as an arsenal for the, you know, white terrorists who tried to kick James Meredith off campus uh, at the university of Mississippi in 1962 said, why don't you do something that'll really get the audience in the palm of your hand? Why don't you say that you're for states rights? And of course, states rights, was an idea that was um, basically uh, the brainchild of John C. Calhoun, oh, yeah. right? the 19th century uh, senator who basically came up with the idea that the federal government had no right to regulate slavery, and that this was a matter of state sovereignty, of states' rights. It was picked up again in the 1950s um, by uh, a columnist and newspaper uh, editor named James J. Kilpatrick, who uh, basically revived the nullification doctrine. Uh, and this is after Brown versus Board of Education, when, you know, lynching returns to America's life. And uh, you have massive resistance in places like Mississippi. And that when politicians in Mississippi came to the Neshoba County Fair when they ran for governor, which they always did because it was such a big event, mm-hmm. they would they would basically compete to outdo each other in their kind of feral racist calls for resistance and violence. Uh, you know, um, it was, it was, it was an, an awful legacy, but you know, so Ronald Reagan comes to speak there in 1980, you know, but Michael Dukakis came to speak there in 1988. Right? Wow. And, you know, so, so, you know, this is, this is, and, and, and one of the amazing things is, so um, this is remembered, I think falsely as evidence that Ronald Reagan uh, was kind of basing his campaign uh, on kind of a racist uh, dog whistle. And the reason I say I think it's kind of falsely remembered this way is two reasons. If you actually listen to the speech, it's not like this kind of blood and guts, you know, kind of shouting at my, uh, his mm-hmm. lungs, you know, segregation now, segregation forever. He almost whispers it. <laughs> you know, he, he kind of knows because he's a guy who really is – really, really, really devoted to the idea that he's not the bad guy and he's not going to be a demagogue, right? Um, he he seems ashamed of what he was doing. He seems to know what what he was doing was kind of out of bounds. And immediately afterwards, there was a huge backlash all across the country, and including among Mississippi Republicans who worried that he was making uh, them look like 
George Wallace. Mm-hmm. He was making them look like the party of the guy, uh, the Ku Klux Klan. Dude, because dude. even then in Mississippi, right, in 1980 in Mississippi, even, you know, um, the most conservative people didn't want to be seen as racist. In 1960, 1964, no one in Mississippi who was a racist cared about being thought about as a racist. Right. It was a point of pride. Right. But but by 1980, again, that example of George Wallace, um, you know, not not using racial code words uh, in his own presidential campaign, it was seen as uh, something that was a little bit shameful. Right. It's like in 19, you know, in 19, if you're if you're a right wing uh, politician and like, you know, and you're running for Congress in, say, 1936. Mm. Right. um, You might be able to say, oh, those New York bankers are really cheating you. Right. Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't say that in 1946 after the Holocaust. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's like basically the situation uh, in Mississippi. So I want it's so curious, you know, here he Reagan spoke near where those three civil rights leaders were were lynched and buried in a dam. I mean, it's horrible. Right. And then fast forward 40 years to Trump running for president and going to Tulsa, Oklahoma Originally scheduling it on June 19th, which is, of course, Juneteenth. Was that intentional? Was that that a dog whistle of sorts? Or was he just that dumb? It's hard to figure. I I think it's it's, it's really (laughs) quite possible. Because if you look what happened um, only, uh, you know, basically the week after that, he announced his um, acceptance speech for a day that's remembered as what is a bloody axe handle Sunday in Jacksonville, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, uh, basically, I think it was in 1960 when uh, there was an NAACP rally and black civil rights activists were chased down the streets and beaten with, with axe handles. Right. And, you know, so I don't think Donald Trump, you know, is like, you know, you know, kind of studying the annals of history for these dog whistle dates, but I think Stephen Stephen Miller certainly could be right. Uh, uh Uh-huh. And, you know, I think that the dog whistle is basically that um, there's two things. Obviously, I think that the average conservative voter doesn't know about Juneteenth, doesn't know about Axe Handle Sunday, and isn't necessarily even kind of eager to have a president who kind of associates himself with those sorts of events. But, you know, yes, he, he wins the loyalty of the most fervent racists, right, who you know, basically the idea is these are guys are going to be the shock troops. And then you get into the really dark territory of he's going to need those shock troops. He was trying to steal the election. But then the other thing is they, the cunning of the dog whistle is he knows that liberals (laughs) will hear the dog whistle. Right. And then liberals will complain and they'll sound like a bunch of whiners. Right. And uh, he, he can prove himself willing to stand up to the liberals right and he'll then the liberals will uh amplify the dog whistle then they amplify the dog whistle <laughs> and if you look at the kind of speech he gave at mount rushmore oh. in which his whole message was i'm going to be the guy who's going to not stand in the schoolhouse door but kind of stand in the gap in front of the, the, the statues of the confederate heroes that very much seems to be uh not ancillary to the way he's running for president in in 2020 but central to it it does seem to be central and it's 
it's surprising to me, but I'm always surprised. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. With us today is Rick Perlstein, author of... Inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. Yeah. Many, many books, including Reaganland, America's Right Turn, uh, coming out uh, in uh, August later this year. And we're talking about an article, Why Trump Can't Dog Whistle His Way Back to the White House. One thing, and and I had forgotten about that guy who climbed the flagpole to get the Confederate flag down. Yeah, a woman. A woman. Wow. Bring something. How the heck is he embracing the Confederate flag now? It, it, right. Is it's, that... it's quite amazing. And that's, and that's the thing. It's not working, right? <laughs> is it? I mean, <laughs> I mean I, it's not enough to kind of overcome, you know, the death cult, you know, and the tanking economy. Uh, I mean, he's going down, right? I mean, his, his numbers are going down, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, Will I, it be enough? Yeah, you know, exactly. Who knows? That's, a, that's a separate question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And 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 back to Reagan, though. You know, he he had black friends, and yet, I mean, like uh, Ralph Abernethy endorsed him, and and yet, uh, some of our listeners who are from New England may remember the violent uh, white reaction to busing of school kids in Boston in the late nineteen seventies. Sure. I worked in a campaign in which the Republican opponent was Albert Dapa. O'Neill, <laughs> he was. Oh, it seems. Oh, I, I had known. I hadn't known about him. He makes a cameo, right? Oh, he does. He was. He was a dog whistle racist too. And candidate Reagan appeared with him in Boston. I mean, Dapper O'Neill was known as a white supremacist, racist. Um, was uh, he a Republican? Oh God, yes. <laughs> Interesting. I, I, I just kind of assumed that he was, you know. Well, maybe I mean, he was a Democrat. I don't know. From Boston, you could be both. I mean, the Democratic right. Party is Trump. But he was certainly a right winger, oh, and, and yeah. you know, had kind of you know almost like you know KKK sympathies almost. Very much so. So Reagan appeared with him, and what worse. seemed it's to be far worse than Neshoba, right? In a lot of ways. In a way, not necessarily worse, but similar. Yes, and that's that's when he started his campaign. So he announced his primary campaign in November of 1979 and immediately did this tour of Southie, right? Mm-hmm. With Dapper O'Neill, mm-hmm. right? And, he, and like I said, he just gave a standard speech. So no one remembered, you know, he didn't say, you know, he, he probably did mention busing, but of course it was easy to say then, oh, well, even black people don't want busing, right. right? So he didn't say anything that kind of crossed the line. He next went to, uh, and I'm a, a Midwestern guy. So like, you guys know Dapper O'Neill. He went to Cicero, Chicago, Cicero, Illinois, which is basically the Southie of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, you know, equally violent, equally racist. And he, you know, he, you know, and I, as a historian, I was able to, you know, uncover the briefing document he got. So you're going to this place called Cicero. Mm-hmm. You know, here's here's the main thing they're concerned about. They're concerned about a um, law that will that will um, require the suburban suburbs and cities to share their um, uh, transit resources, which was basically um, uh, a way of saying those those you know black politicians in Chicago are going to force us to um, it was a kind of a different kind of busing, right? That they're uh-huh. going to make it easier for people to black people to come into Cicero and steal our jobs or whatever was the fear, right? So, but he, again, he gave this kind of standard speech there, but then he gave a speech in Atlanta, which was this, you know, seething racial cauldron. So his original kind of tour, so the Neshoba was the beginning of his general election, right? The beginning of his primary campaign election, 
um, was, you know, all these racial hotspots. And I did not put this in the book because I was not able to confirm it. But according to at least one person, Reagan was actually quite uncomfortable with this and didn't, he basically asked them not to put these kind of places on the schedule again. Right. So again, this is Hmm. a guy who was very um, naively, you know, believed that he, if he could, you know, kind of, um, he, 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 he was very eager to preserve his own sense of his own innocence. And he was very brilliant at projecting to his audience that they were innocent, that basically he, he, he could go to a place like Cicero in which basically people felt themselves accused of racism. Like a lot of kind of Trump fans are very angry at feeling themselves accused right. of racism. And he could kind of, you know, uh, pass his blessing over them and absolve them of their racism. Right. Wow. Interesting. That's, that's a very, very amazing strategy. And I remember at the time thinking Reagan wasn't all that bright, but compared to now, well, wow. <laughs> he, he had this amazing emotional intelligence and this amazing ability to connect with audiences. And basically what he's doing is, you know, what, what we on the left and a lot, large swaths of the country, not even on the left, uh, even kind of corporate America are doing is there, we're, we're really kind of beginning to reckon with how white supremacy works. Right. We're doing kind of like this hard work that really offends people on the right of saying, wow, how are we implicated in these problems? And Reagan had, you know, very much a brilliance in doing the opposite strategy. You know, he's basically said America is not a racist country, does not have a racial problem. He would give examples of, you know, Los Angeles electing a black mayor or all these, you know, amazing, you know, kind of individual accomplishments by black people that were accepted. You know, later he might have said, oh, well, look, we had this wonderful popular show, The Cosby Show or something like that. And that was his way of saying that um, you do not have to work on solving this terrible problem uh-huh. that is defined American history. And that's a very powerful gift to give to white racists. You, and you don't have to say racist things. You know, you don't have to do racist things. You know, you, you can support policies that have racist outcomes. Uh, but 100%, you're going to get those racists. And he did. Because he said, those people who want to tell you that you're racist, that America is racist, that America is bad, that America has this legacy it must overcome. Nope, not a problem. It's a very powerful message. And it's it's having some effect now, for sure. I mean, I, I've been amazed and uh, talking to some black friends about, uh, you know, I'm confused as to how people can be so blatantly racist. And, and I've learned that white racists, maybe in the early 60s and 50s, they'd say, yo, I'm a racist now. They deny it. They deny that he's racist. And it's it's not it's not as overt. And it certainly wasn't for Reagan. But I, I wonder, was, was Reagan more liberal? I mean, have you given credit for? I mean, he, he had anti-government politics that camouflaged pre- prejudice, as you write. Was Reagan not indeed prejudiced? Was it that the candidate just thought it was bad politics? Well, you know, it, that's, that's the fascinating thing, is it doesn't really matter. If you're, if you're cutting the budget for public housing in America uh, so that these, you know, places can't, that people are living in can't afford maintenance, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it doesn't matter if you hate black people or not, (laughs) if you're hurting black people, right? 
I mean, does it really you know, matter whether um, he would invite a black person over for dinner or whether he would be mad if his daughter married a black person? Mm-hmm. Now, what were Ronald Reagan's views about black people? I think he was very prejudiced against Africa and Africans. He said very nasty things. Uh, we he's on the Nixon tapes, you know, basically saying these these Africans at the UN they they they, they barely wear shoes, you know. Um, I think that he probably was perfectly comfortable being around black people if they held the right views. Remember mm-hmm. that thing, like you know, uh, white the white middle class and blacks feel, who feel sure, the same way. Sure, sure. But people who you know were uppity, like you know, like the the black civil rights activists who you know, would come to Chicago, uh, California universities when he was governor and, and give black power speeches. He was, had no sympathy for that. Right. He had no empathy for that. Right. Now, now today, the people who are saying who can't see that Donald Trump is a racist and want to believe in their own innocence. We had this unbelievably astonishing example of this, the madness of all this, uh, in one of those viral videos, a white woman in Michigan, um, um, held her gun at an African-American woman as she, you know, filmed this on her cell phone. And there had been some altercation, you know, about like who, who had jostled who and something mm-hmm. like that. But the, we now know that the exchange began with this white per- person attacking the black person in a rage by saying, we're not racist. And basically saying, I hate you for saying we're racist. Mm. So nearly shooting a black person for, to death for basically the crime of of making this person feel like they might be a racist. I mean, it's demented stuff. It is demented stuff, and, it, and it's so hard to believe. And and one thing Ronald Reagan sort of, it seems like it was the, the early days of the political power of white Southern evangelicals and fundamentalists. Right. Reagan owns those people. And I, oh, well, that's another whole whole part of this discussion. The the way he was able to get you know the white Southern evangelicals, who by the way, and this is a big part of my book Reaganland, a lot of these guys like Jerry Falwell were segregationist leaders in the fifties. Yeah, right, Jerry Falwell, you know, gave sermons in which he said, "Well, the civil rights movement is all a Moscow plot, and if you read your Bible, <laughs> we know that black people are supposed to live in certain places and white people are supposed to live in certain places, and it's the curse of Ham." And so he was, you know, absolutely racist. But by the 1970s, he'd given that up, just like George Wallace. But he chose a different enemy. He was savage, sadistic, murderous when talking about gay people. <laughs> he would say a, a, a gay person would, would 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 kill you as soon as he would look at you. That's how that's how homophobic he was. And still, and, and Trump, Trump really has those people which which sort of surprised me but there's some sort oh, of well, that, belief yeah, in weird, it right it's some sort of uh, belief that uh, he was sent by god this uh this religious right. nationalism to replace uh, democracy which is 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 really weird i wonder how much political power that group that we're addressing now may have had in 1980 compared Enormous to power. now well do tell. Oh, oh, compared to now. Yeah. Well, that's 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 interesting. I mean, the the, the election in 1980 was was a blowout, yes, right? But if it had, <laughs> if, if if it had been close, um, uh, the margin of difference would have been evangelical switching their allegiance from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan, because you know even though Jimmy Carter was a Southern Baptist, he was for the ERA. You know, he he right. he was he was he was he was nice to gay people, right? Yes. yes. Uh, and. Um, what power do they have now? Well, you know, um, 
there are certainly a lot of them. And, the, and, and if you believe that the stakes of politics are whether you're going to get into heaven or whether you're going to get, mm. get into hell mm-hmm. and whether you know, Jesus will come back in glory or whether he won't, that's a pretty strong motivator, right? Yeah. So these people are not just, it's not just their size, but it's also their passion. The intensity, right? yeah. yeah. The intensity, the, that's right. The, the power. And, you know, Carter, of course, lost his race for re-election in 1980. And let's look at that. I wonder if he was trying too hard to be all things to all people. Oh, that's such a big part of what, 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 what doomed the Carter presidency to failure. Well, and I wonder, here are the Democrats now, and poor uh, Joe Biden, who seems like he's going to be uh, the nominee, I wonder if, you know, he's going to have difficulty with trying to be all things to all people. And, and Trump is painting anybody who is not with him as basically right. a Moscow stooge, you know, right. and just calling him <laughs> far left. And, you know, so yeah, yeah, it's I, I wonder how it played in 1980 and how it plays now. What do you think? Well, I mean, that's the Democratic Party, right? It's yeah. like I'm not a part of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat, you right. know? Will Rogers. It's Yeah, it's always been this crazy quilt coalition. I mean, it's a pluralist political party. I mean, the the, the, the Republican Party is much more like an ideological European-style party in a parliamentary system where you have parties that have, that aren't coalitions. They have a working-class party, and they have this party, and da 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 And uh, so, you know, a, a, a Democratic leader is always going to have the challenge of, you know, balancing the interests of, you know, white working-class guys in the construction trade and keeping mm-hmm. them on board, and and African Americans and keeping them on board, and feminists and keeping them on board, and 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 people in this part of the country and that part of the country, um, and that's always been the challenge of being yeah. a politician in the Democratic Party. You know, Jimmy Carter had his own problems. Mm-hmm. You know, he he hated doing politics. Mm-hmm. He thought was an engineer and if you could come up with the right solution to the problem you would just announce it and he wouldn't you know talk to the congressman in that district he said i'm going to get rid of this dam and this dam and this hydroelectric power thing because they're not rational and the congressman would be like maybe you could have you know consulted with me first i need that dam in order to you know mm-hmm. get the votes in my district you know so Jimmy Carter is an interesting guy and there's a lot 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 I learned you know studying that 1980 election when it came to Jimmy Carter, but a big part of it is exactly that. He became president by not saying much. And then sort of the, you know, basically becoming all things to all people Mm -hmm. and and seeing a being seen as a savior by people who had basically opposite views about how the world should be run. And then the bill for that came due. That's a big part of it. And as Alfred E. Newman said, what, me worry? Yeah, I'm worried. I am worried. Uh, for those oh, well, who, we got to worry. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. For those who may have just tuned in, Burke Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking with Rick Perlstein, historian, author of a whole bunch of books, including Reaganland. I can't wait to read that. America's Right yeah. Turn coming out. Uh, you can get it at your, you can get it at your favorite uh, website now. You can order, order your copy, reserve it today. Uh, luckily, they moved back Mary Trump's book by two weeks, so we're not going to be competing <laughs> with that. Oh, loving that. Oh, my. I don't know if it's going to make any difference, though. Well, the phrase government overreach, as you point out, was used by Reagan, and it's being used now. Government overreach. And that brings up the whole uh, COVID-19 thing. And your thoughts on how that plays in 2020, government overreach. Yeah. It's sort of a dog whistle, Um, too. 
It is definitely a dog whistle. And, you know, the mask thing is so fascinating. Yeah. I have a piece actually that I'm trying to place. Uh, people don't want to necessarily hear all this stuff, but I, um, I point out that this is, this will, this will really, you know, take you back. There was a, a, a referendum on the ballot in Utah in 1976 to prevent the fluoridation of the water supply. Uh-huh. And the, the, the it, it won that one. And, and, and for the first time, Orrin Hatch won the Senate seat. Mm. And if you look at the, the critics of the fluoridation of the water supply, it was the same thing. Government can't tell me what to drink in my water. What are these, what are these experts now? I have my own experts, you know, it causes cancer, yada, yada, yada. Very similar to what the nonsense was a communist about plug. COVID. Yeah. Well, that was, that was it too. Although that was, I think a bit of a, that was actually a bit of a, um, left wing lampoon of this stuff, but it was definitely the same thing that kind of, caused people to suspect the communists were behind any intrusion on their ability to do whatever they want, even if it harmed others, right, is the same thing that makes people go in the streets and say, you're not going to make me wear a mask. Mm. I'm not going to submit to your fascist government, you know. The idea that, like, there there can be, you know, a collective agency working for the common good that transcends individual interests is not something right-wingers believe. No. Right? Yeah. And that's you get into the 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 the, the, dis, the distrust of science, because everything must be part of a plot of some kind of ideologue, right? The idea that these scientists must have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is stuff I've been studying all my life. The way right wing reaction thinks, you can you know you could see you can see similar sentiments in the thinking of Edmund Burke in the 18th century. That those fancy, you know, um, those those fancy those fancy you know experts in Paris. You know, don't understand, you know, the way ordinary people live in their villages, right? Um, well, we don't le- ever learn from history, it seems. Well, one thing, and, and I want to ask you to look into your glorious, no doubt, crystal ball. Trump is an entertainer. very cloudy, yeah. Yeah, he measures everything in terms of ratings. Of course, right. he makes up such numbers without regard for the truth over and over again. Now, Ronald Reagan clearly was disciplined. Discipline is vital to any campaign. Is there, do you think, an obvious lapse in necessary discipline on on the part of Trump 2020? Is he and his campaign, are they ignoring all history that shows that Reagan had to obscure some real racism? What do you what do you think about that discipline? Is there any discipline on the on the Trump part? And might I, it work? I think I think that um, obviously the candidate has no discipline. He's going to say what he's going to say, but a lot of the people involved in the campaign have a lot of discipline, and a lot of their discipline that they're applying themselves towards, and the kind of the best experts that they have on their side are um, working around the liability of the candidate. And they are creating a machine to steal the election and that they're kind of setting all these markers about Democratic voter fraud Mm -hmm. to to basically say whatever are the results coming in from the states, that they're illegitimate and, uh, you know, they are going to use legal techniques, uh, agitation Mm -hmm. techniques, rhetorical techniques. to basically steal the election and the job of the Democrats will be to make it so it's not close enough for them to steal. That's a high hurdle. It's going to be very, very difficult. And uh, of course, there's the whole Kanye West thing, which I think is 
sort of curious. He's a big Trump supporter, and he's black, and he says he's running for president. Do you think this could be strategic? Could it be with an aim of siphoning off black votes in blue states? Could they be that smart and strategic? Oh, no, I think that, uh, no, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, uh, uh, Kanye, a brilliant artist, and tragically does seem to have elements Mm. of mental illness and <laughs> and i think that um well first of all it, it shows my point that even trump you know wants to be seen as someone who's a friend of black people right Not no one true. wants to be seen as a racist right mm-hmm. so that he has him in the oval office and, you know this is clearly a publicity stunt it might not am- amount to anything but um Trump needs Kanye West. I mean, they they want to get like two or three more percentage points of African Americans. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that could that could hurt them. When and, you're dealing with all these chaos agents, you know, it's kind of hard to, uh, like you say, be disciplined. It is, and the incredible break, the largest gap in support for a president in in history: ninety one percent Trump support among Republicans, two percent among Democrats. It's never been that big before. But two uh, percent. Oh I was God. I was always advised, always run like you're 10 points behind. Joe Biden, I hope you're listening. Do you think, let me just ask you this, could the manipulation of fear in light of the protests, some of which became violent, and thank you very much, Antifa, actually play well enough into Trump hands? What are the chances of that unique strategy working, manipulation of fear? Fear is powerful. I think that, uh, unfortunately, that might work against Trump. Because um, ah. I think people are blaming him for the chaos, and there's a very oh. <laughs> maybe we should end with this and kind of send your listeners to this. There's a really interesting ad. I think it was called Reagan Voters Against Trump. Ah. You can check that out. They came up with a brilliant ad. It's 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 a Ronald Reagan ad from 1980 in which he's sitting there in a suit in a in a kind of an office setting. By the way, his 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 ads were in 1980 were intentionally low tech they didn't want to make him look like he's this flashy hollywood guy uh-huh. and talking about you know all this chaos that's happened guy. in america in the last four years yeah right and it's over scenes of all the chaos that's happened under trump in the last four years and so that's the strategy of saying well if you hate all this uh breakdowns of law and order blame the guy who's in charge not the guy who has no power God, I hope you're right. Oh, thank you so much. It's been very, very interesting. I love history, and uh, I, I, I would like Trump to be beaten. I, yes, I think you uh, kind of had I, that I, feeling. <laughs> I think, uh, I think uh, I'm on the same page. Well, great. Let's do it again in August when my book comes out. All right. Thank you so much, Rick Perlstein. The new book is called Reaganland: America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. There are some who answer no, that we must tell our children not to dream as we once dreamed. Together, tonight, let us say that America is still united, still strong, still compassionate, still willing to stand by those who are persecuted or alone. For those who are victims of police states or government-induced torture or terror, let us speak for them. I believe we can embark on a new age of reform in this country that will make government again responsive to people. We can fight corruption while we work to bring into our government women and men of competence and high integrity. Tomorrow, you will be making a choice between different visions of the future. Are you more confident that our economy will create productive work for our society? Or are you less confident? Do you feel you can keep the job you have or gain a job if you don't have one? 
Are you pleased with the ability of young people to buy a home, of the elderly to live their remaining years in happiness, of our youngsters to take pride in the world we have built for them? Are you convinced that we have earned the respect of the world and our allies? Let us resolve tonight that young Americans will always find a city of hope in a country that is free. And let us resolve they will say of our day and of our generation that we did keep faith with our God, that we did act worthy of ourselves, that we did protect and pass on lovingly that shining city on a hill. Thank you, Bert, anytime.